This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We are coming to the end of the year, a time at which to satisfy the spirit of the season, as well as sometimes our thirst for deductions, we look to share what we have with various charities. But how do we know any particular group actually does what it says it does. One awaited list each year to guide us comes from Nicholas Kristof, the twice Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the New York Times. Nick, I love the idea that there are those among us who rather than get something that is well meant but gets stuck in the attic or soon takes up space on a shelf of goodwill, help somebody in our name. It's a special gift. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I, you know, the last thing I want is another necktie. Um, and, you know, the last thing my wife would want would be another scarf or, or a bit of perfume. And in the meantime, you know, the amounts we spend on a tie or a scarf really can be transformative for other people. Uh, one of the organizations that I list this year, my, my grand prize winner is, uh, is called CAMFED, and it promotes girls' education in sub-Saharan Africa. For $30, you can uh, send a child to elementary school uh, for a year. Um, and that, you know, that will transform that girl's life, will uh, transform the prospects of her children eventually when she has children, of her family and of her community. And, you know, I think that most of us would be pretty tickled to find that we're in place of a tie or, or a scarf, we're actually supporting uh, a transformative gift like that. One of the great things about this particular organization is that the people helped by this charity go on to help others. So even one gift sets off a reaction that keeps helping others as these women succeed. Yeah, that was one of the reasons I chose uh, CAMFED, that, you know, <laughs> it sort of underscores how much the people in the program, the beneficiaries of the program, believe in it. 
that then they go on and uh, because they've gotten an education, they earn a little more money. And each of them on average supports five other children outside their own family to get an education. And so the CAMFED uh, alumni who you know are now scattered around, uh, they actually support more kids getting an education than CAMFED donors do. And, you know, if they're on the ground, if they believe in that model so much, then I think that speaks very well of it. There's the story of Angeline Miramirwa, which I think says a lot about what CAMFED is. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've been following CAMFED for many uh, years, and she was uh, actually the first uh, former beneficiary of CAMFED that I'd met. She came from a very poor farming uh, family, and she was able to attend elementary school on and off, but her family often didn't have enough money to pay school fees, and she'd be humiliated by uh, being you know, sent home, by being called out. And then uh, when it came time to go on to middle school, she just couldn't afford it. And uh, she and uh, then uh, CAMFED, uh, well, she had also, I should say, she had, she had also scored the uh, highest in her school, highest in the district, and one of the highest in all Zimbabwe in the uh, nationwide uh, seventh grade examinations. And even so, though, she couldn't afford to go to high school, CAMFED gave her a, a scholarship, a small scholarship to go on. And she was able to continue her education. And now she is running CAMFED in, uh, in, across all of Africa. And it just speaks to the transformative impact of, uh, of education. There's, a, there's an expression that, uh, you know, talent is universal, but opportunity is not. And girls' education is one way of making uh, opportunity a little bit more universal. For people who want something closer to home, one of the things made your list this year is One Goal, which mentors low-income students here in the United States. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, One Goal started in Chicago. And, you know, there, there's been a lot of discussion in the U.S. about improving college access, and that's important. Um, but, you know, it's also true that one in seven American kids doesn't graduate from high school. And those kids are just cooked in the 21st century. And so one goal uh, starts with, uh, you know, at-risk, low-income students in the United States who are at risk of dropping out of high school and mentors them throughout high school and then helps them go on to college. And so, uh, and these are low-income kids, 96% of them are students of color, um, the upshot is that 99% of them graduate from high school and uh, 86% of them go on to college. Uh, and part of the, one, of the, one of the problems with first-generation kids going to college is that it's often overwhelming. They often sometimes flounder in the first year. And so part of the model of one goal is to give them a lot of support to help them get through that first year so that then they make it all the way through their college years. Which is a very important part of that. There's another one, the Himalayan cataract project. And this is another example of how even a small donation can make a just a huge difference in somebody's life. That's right. I, uh, about five years ago, I went out to Nepal, a small, uh, to a small town called Hatauda uh, in Nepal and saw the Himalayan cataract uh, project in action. And it, it fixes cataracts. Um, and this is particularly important because a lot of people in uh, middle age, 
especially in parts of the world where they're out in the sun all day, where they don't have sunglasses, they get cataracts and all of a sudden they become blind or not all of a sudden, but they, you know, they, they become blind. They can't work anymore. If they're artisans, they can't earn a living. If they're farmers, they're no longer able to support their families. And uh, this organization has pioneered a way of doing cataract surgery in the field. It costs uh, just $25 in materials uh, per eye. And uh, just, you know, I've seen a lot of interventions, but there is just something biblical about seeing this five-minute surgery and then the next day the bandages come off and this person can see for the first time in years. It is it is just so inspiring and uplifting. Yeah, well, there's little more in keeping with the time of, of year than to make the blind see. There was one woman that you witnessed as the bandages were removed. She had been crawling to get from one place to another, even to get water. That's right. And she couldn't support her children. You know, when people, when parents uh, lose their eyesight, then their children are at greater risk of starvation uh, as well. And then is simple... <laughs> This simple surgery, you know, twenty-five dollars an eye, then completely transforms their prospects. Those of their children, they can then afford to pay school fees so their kids go on to school, and then to watch, you know, that woman. Uh, I, I, I saw her surgery, and then the next day saw the bandages came off. And she was just so thrilled. They did an eye exam. She had twenty-twenty vision. Um, it. It really felt that, you know, we live in an age of miracles, that, that we can give that kind of a gift uh, is just so uplifting and inspiring. And boy, this year we need uplift and we need inspiration. Yes, we do. I should point out that uh, in your list, in your column this year, because some people, because of what happened this past year, are short of money, completely understandable, but still want to do something, there are recommendations for people who just have, you know, time to contribute. Volunteering is a really important part of how we can help others and 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 also frankly find a certain measure of purpose ourselves this time of year. So I I recommended two organizations that work across the United States with uh, children. One is called Reading Partners which uh, promotes literacy for children in early grades and these days it's done by Zoom, but essentially it's you know, it's coaching kids who might not have a book at home, whose parents might not be able to read, who uh, or at least aren't getting, you know, as the support they need uh, from from other adults. And it's been very effective. Uh, uh, nearly all kids after at the end of the year actually read at grade level. And the other is called CASA, and it supports foster uh, youth in almost every county in the country. And it essentially provides mentoring and support for these uh, foster kids because, I mean, frankly, I mean, there are 400,000 American kids in foster care, and that system is just broken. They need advocates. They need support. They need people speaking up for them. And CAS has a way to do that. You can find out more about these charities at uh, the website, ChristophImpact.org. That's K-R-I-S-T-O-F, Impact.org. And of course, from reading Nick Christoph's columns in the New York Times. Thank you so much for, for being with us. Happy holidays. Oh, happy holidays to you. It's really been a, a pleasure to speak. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. 
Right after the election results were announced, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin announced that he was ending the program designed to help businesses make it through the COVID crisis and told the Federal Reserve, return the money. Now, this is no small potatoes. Congress earmarked $495 billion for this. Mnuchin only okayed less than half of that for specific loan programs. And most of that was never used, even as one business after another went out of business, costing America jobs and the taxes that get paid by the people who have those jobs, as well as the companies that hire them. So what is going on here? Bharat Ramamurti is a member of the COVID-19 Congressional Oversight Commission, which keeps a watch on the Department of the Treasury and the Fed's management of stimulus and loan programs mandated by the CARES Act. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Let's start at the beginning. What is this program? What was it intended to do? Sure. In March, uh, as the COVID crisis was just beginning, Congress directed the Treasury Department to work with the Federal Reserve to use up to $500 billion dollars worth of appropriated money to provide loans both to uh, businesses and to state and local governments that have been hit hard by COVID. And uh, that $500 billion, because of the way that the Federal Reserve manages things, could potentially support up to $4 trillion or $5 trillion worth of loans. Now, eight months later, the program, as you noted, has come to an end as Secretary Mnuchin has withdrawn support for the program. And at the end of the day, the entire program ended up doing about $20 billion worth of loans, well, well, well short of the $5 trillion that it was ticketed to to be able to do. Now, there's so many moving parts to this. So let's look at some of these individually within this. There was the Fed's Main Street program. This was supposed to help small businesses, middle-sized businesses. Uh, They had this huge lending capacity. They used very little of it, even as businesses were going out of business or or firing people. Yeah, I think that there was a problem with the design of the program. So as you noted, the lending program, when it was announced, had a $600 billion capacity. And as of last week, the program had done a little bit over $5 billion in loans. So that's not even 1% of the capacity that it had when it was announced back in April. And, And the issues were two things. Number one, it took a really long time for the program to get off the ground. So even though Congress passed this law in March, the Fed announced the plan to create a Main Street program in April. It took uh, several months after that before the program even began accepting loans. And the second issue was that the loans that were being offered were just not very appealing to businesses that were struggling. And so as a result, you had maybe a couple of hundred businesses actually take advantage of this program at a time when tens of thousands of small and medium-sized businesses were really struggling and could have used help from the federal government. There was also a section municipal liquidity facility. This was supposed to help municipal governments because, of course, with people not working, they weren't getting taxes and people were defaulting on property taxes. And this affects schools, it affects uh, police departments, fire departments, you know, all of that and more. And, you know, even again, as cities have been firing hundreds of thousands of workers and cutting programs that are obviously important, very little of that was used. Yeah, this was another serious failure of the of the Fed and the Treasury here. Uh, that program, when it was announced, the, the municipal program, uh, was capable of doing uh, $600 billion worth of loans. And yet they've only done two loans as of today, one to the state of Illinois and one to the New York uh, subway system totaling just over $1.5 billion. So again, a tiny fraction 
of the capacity of the program. And as you noted, it's not because there isn't need at the state and local level. Uh, Some estimates are that there's a $500 billion shortfall in revenue projected at state and local governments over the next couple of years because property tax revenue is going down, sales tax revenue is going down, income tax revenue is going down, and that's going to filter through state and local budgets over the next couple of years. And so the consequence of this program's failure is severe because instead of being able to fill this these budget gaps with loans from the federal government, instead state and local governments have had to uh, make serious cuts to programs and have fired already more than a million state and local workers. And so in the middle of the pandemic, to be losing teachers and nurses and first responders and public health officials, it's a double blow. So I take it that the businesses most in danger here are the ones most severely hurt by the virus, like restaurants and on the larger side, hotels, airlines. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you look at the data about which industries are have struggled the most under COVID and have had the most job losses, it's what you would expect. Travel, tourism, uh, uh, the service sector, restaurants, bars, uh, malls, so on. Um, Those are the types of companies that need additional support right now. You know, in many cases, these are good companies that have been well managed uh, up until the point that COVID hit. And I think that it it makes sense to think of COVID as, as a natural disaster, right? It's the same kind of thing as when a hurricane comes and hits a part of the country or there's a tornado or a flood, uh, what the federal government does is it steps in to help the businesses that have been affected because it wasn't anything those businesses did wrong uh, that they're in this bad position. I think what we've seen so far is an unwillingness to provide the aid that's necessary to allow these good companies to survive this crisis. And of course, that means that the people who work for those companies are, are hurt too. This would seem especially before the election, although this was announced, of course, after the election. But this would seem, when they weren't even using a lot of this money, to be something that was almost a a sure vote-getter. I mean, if you were out of work and you said, oh my gosh, my company might be able to hire me back if they get these loans, or if you're, you know, a company encouraging people that, you know, we're going to make it through this if we can just get to the spring or summer when the vaccines are generally available, it it seems odd that this money wasn't wasn't used. Yeah, I think it, it, it's it's been uh, there's a bit of irony here because the the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department, in my view, designed these programs so poorly back in the spring that they haven't been used very much. And then the fact that they haven't been used very much was the excuse that they used for ending them and saying it wasn't going to be a big deal if we ended them. Well, you know, if the programs had been designed the way that Congress intended for them to be designed, uh, I think that they would have been much more useful and the thought of ending them would have been uh, would have been much harder. So it's, it's really the original sin of all of this is the way that the programs were designed back in the spring and the summer so that even though we're in the midst of a historic economic crisis, even though state and local governments are really seeing plummeting revenues, even though uh, small and mid-sized companies are taking it on the chin, the way that they designed these programs still was not, still were not effective and, and attractive to these uh, entities that need help. And, and the amount of damage that's going to have been done because of these decisions, it's kind of overwhelming. Like I said, uh, there's already been a million layoffs at the state and local level. 
uh, state and local governments moving forward with the budgets for next year are making severe cuts to nutrition programs, housing programs, K through 12 schools. Uh, companies are laying off workers. The data shows that the amount of permanent layoffs keeps going up and up every month. And so we've created this economic crisis. And at the end of the day, we, it didn't have to be this way. And that's what's so frustrating about this situation. So as a final question, even though COVID might be new, we haven't seen anything like this for a century, these kinds of programs are not. We have a template. 2008, the recession hit. We spent money like crazy to help even the big banks survive, many of which were the cause of the problem in the first place. This time, just a little more than a decade later, we have small and medium-sized businesses, which through no fault of their own are in trouble, and we're not helping them. So again, what's changed? Well, look, I think it's uh, two things. One, I think that um, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department as institutions are very concerned about the financial system and financial markets. And so in 2008, when the financial system was cratering, even though it was the fault of the banks that we were in that position, I think that the Treasury and the Fed were creative and entrepreneurial and aggressive about using every possible authority they had to solve the problem and to resolve the financial crisis. And they did. They did it by pumping tons and tons of money into the financial system and helping the banks that had taken that made risky bets. Now we look at what they've done in 2020. And I think that institutionally, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve just don't feel the same way about trying to help state and local governments and small and medium sized businesses. Look again in 2020, they, they acted very quickly to head off any possibility of a financial crisis. They acted quickly to shore up the stock market, which is back to the levels it was at before the crisis, but they just don't have the same type of creativity and ingenuity when it comes to trying to help small and medium-sized businesses and state and local governments. And I think that's obviously the fault of the Fed and the Treasury, but ultimately it's the fault of Congress, because I think that Congress should have been more aware of this short, these shortcomings and designed a different approach to try and help uh, these entities that are in need. Virat Ramamurti is a member of the COVID-19 Congressional Oversight Commission, which keeps a watch again on the Department of Treasury and the Fed's management of stimulus and loan programs that were mandated by the CARES Act. I thank you for taking us through all of this. Thank you very much. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. 
That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. As we deal with this winter surge, we're dealing with some economic realities that may be with us for a while. What's happening to families? With many schools closed and job losses in the service economy where women are a major factor, somebody has had to stay home with the kids, and almost all of the time that has been the woman. Two-income families have been reduced to one, and single-family incomes to none. The effect of this is going to have some long-term consequences. Sarah Jane Glenn is Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress. Good to have you with us. With women not working, a lot of child care places have just evaporated. It's not clear how quickly that sector can come back. So this could be a long-range problem for women in the workplace. That's one of the real fears that that I have thinking about the other side of this pandemic. You know, we have kind of the immediate crisis that families are in at this exact moment that they're struggling to address. But then even once we have a vaccine, once we're in a safer place, if all of these childcare slots have disappeared, it's going to be incredibly difficult for, for working parents to be able to transition back to work because there just won't be anyone to watch their children. You know, I brought this up with Stephanie Kuntz when she was on the show recently. It's we know how to do this. I guess it's a matter of will, because during World War II, when women were needed in factories and offices, we had the government doing a very far reaching federally subsidized network of nurseries and child care centers. And these were in almost every state in the union. Of course, when the war ended, we just let that evaporate. But it's not like we haven't done this. There is precedent for it. And that's what makes this inaction so much more frustrating is that we know what needs to be done. The answer is not difficult. This isn't a situation where we're sort of throwing our hands up in the air saying, oh, my gosh, we have no idea what to do. We know what to do. We need to make investments in child care to make high quality child care more available, more accessible, and more affordable for families. Unfortunately, there just hasn't been enough will in Congress to actually spend the money to make this happen. And I'm hopeful if there can be any silver lining to what's happening right now, that that, that change may be coming. And, and to think that on top of this, you know, we're experiencing a, a serious decline in demand in the service sector in particular, right? So fewer people are going out to eat, fewer people are going on vacations. So it, there's both microeconomic impacts when women are forced out of the labor force because individual families have less, but there are also really significant macroeconomic impacts because that, that spending, when that starts to dry up, that hits everybody in a community. This is incredibly far-reaching. I think sometimes we imagine this as just being a women's issue or just a mother's issue. This is an everybody issue. This is going to hurt all of us, and we need to be thinking about it as a national problem, not just an individual family's problem. A major part of the problem right now are school closings. I mean, they seem like a good idea to prevent the spread of disease, but they also throw more families into poverty as people have to quit work to do child care. And even in a two-parent family, that means the second income evaporates. And as you know, I've already pointed out, sometimes that means you can't pay the rent, the mortgage, much less car payments and everything else. Would it be better for families to keep the schools open right now? I know this is a, a huge debate. Even people in the Biden uh, COVID commission are thinking maybe that's a better idea. And there are lots of reasons why it would be good to keep kids in school if that's something that we're able to do safely. I mean, certainly children benefit from being in that environment And there are lots of of very real concerns that people have about the losses that children are experiencing academically, socially, in terms of their development. You know, this is not a great situation for kids. But the other piece that is making this really challenging, even in spite of the fact that there do seem to be um, better health outcomes for children in relation to COVID-19, the problem is all the other adults who work in the schools. And so what we're seeing lots of places is that 
it's both about the spread of COVID-19, but also about a lack of, of personnel. So it's a really complicated problem that we're trying to fix there. But I think that you're right to point out that when we talk about childcare, we tend to think about very young kids who haven't yet started school. And what we're experiencing now is that kids all across the age spectrum, because school doesn't exist as that critical infrastructure to help working parents, every family is getting hit by this. It's not just those with young kids who would normally be going to daycare. What do we need? What kind of infrastructure do we need to have here so we don't fall into this pit again? Because there's going to be people who are going to be, you know, having so many problems uh, financially or maybe even becoming homeless if they can't pay the rent or mortgage that we're going to have lasting problems on the other side of this. Well, I'm so glad that you use the word infrastructure because I think that really is the way that we need to be thinking about childcare in particular. I mean, there are a whole host of economic stimulus benefits that we're going to need to be thinking seriously about on the other side of this to help get people back to work, to try to increase spending, and to try to help crawl our way out of the situation that we're in right now. But if we're thinking specifically about what to do with kids and how to help working parents, because that is a huge portion of the workforce, we need to be thinking about childcare as critical infrastructure. It's not a thing that's nice to have. It's a thing that is necessary. Families have to have a safe place for their kids to be if they're going to be able to go to, to work and to do their jobs. And we cannot recover as an economy if we don't have that critical infrastructure in place. So there needs to be dedicated funding that goes specifically to the childcare industry to make sure that centers that have closed can reopen, that the centers that are still open can operate safely, and that we can expand access. Because even before all of this happened, there were millions of families in America who either couldn't access childcare because it just wasn't readily available where they live, or they couldn't afford to pay for it. Sarah Jane Glenn is Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress. Thank you so much for, for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The world of science got some unexpected and not very welcome news this week. It affects not just everybody in this world, but also whoever, whatever, may be out of this world. The Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, through which we've been watching the stars for more than half a century, is to be demolished. And you've seen it, whether you're aware of it or not. It was the star of the final fight scene in the James Bond movie Goldeneye. It's been featured in the movie Contact and on X-Files. Because through it, we've not only been looking at stars, we have been listening. It is a center of radio astronomy and the search for extraterrestrial life. So what is it? loss mean? Seth Shostak is the person who knows that better than anybody. He is senior astronomer at SETI Institute. He is on many TV shows, many books, honored with cameos in the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still and a Star Trek film, and host of his own podcast, of which I'm a fan, Big Picture Science. Hey, Seth, how are you? Uh, just fine, Gils. It's, it's a pleasure to talk to you again. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, let's get a basic thing. What happened? How did, how did this thing become broken beyond repairing? Well, I, you know, that, that's the, the, the very good question that the people down in Puerto Rico have been trying to answer for a while. In August, the first cable broke. Now, you, you might wonder, what are these cables? Look, the Arecibo telescope is just like a backyard satellite dish, right? You've got this big reflector, and then you've got to hold a receiver at the focus. So normally you do that with some sort of tripod or arm or something. But at Arecibo, they do it by having cables that hold this uh, receiver assembly about 500 feet off the surface. Well, one of those cables broke in August, 
And, uh, you know, on its way down, it destroyed some of the panels and the aluminum surface there. But they figured they'd fix it. And, you know, six months, a year later, everything would be okay again. But a second cable broke about a week ago. And that's changed the whole prognosis for this iconic instrument. So how important has it been? How important is its loss? Now, you know, it's hard to say that. It's, it's a bit like saying, well, I mean, how important was Sir Arthur Fleming's microscope? I, I mean, I, you know, it's hard to say. But the, what you can do is you can point to all the things that Arecibo actually discovered. For example, the first planet around another star was found at Arecibo. Many people don't even know that. They're, they're familiar with other experiments that were done at conventional uh, telescopes, you know, mirrors and lens telescopes. But the first one was actually found with this giant radio dish. The other thing is, as you mentioned, it's been used for decades to look for ET. Hasn't found them yet, but, uh, you know, it's it's really good at that kind of an experiment. It's used to study pulsars. I used it in the 1970s to study galaxies. So it's done all sorts of research and uh, research that would be very hard to do anywhere else. I know you've done a good deal of research there, as you've told us. You've been doing it there a long time. What's it like being there? Well, well, Gil, it's a bit like going to uh, a monastery. Not that I've ever gone to one, nor do I hope to. But it, it is it is somewhat like that, in that you're at this you know location that you never leave. There's housing on site. So, you know, at night or whenever you're going to go to sleep, you know, you don't go very far. You just walk to some little cabin and, you know, there's a, uh, uh, all the necessaries for, for staying there. There's a cafeteria, so you don't go anywhere to eat. You just stay on site. Uh, so, you know, your whole life is consumed by this, this sort of experience. Maybe it's sort of like summer camp without the annoyance of all those other kids. I mean, it's, it's actually very nice. And when you leave and go back to the real world, it's kind of a disappointment. <laughs> I know in science fiction films, you know, we talk back and forth to uh, aliens when and if we find them uh, all the time. But these distances are so great. I've compared it to the old joke about the three tortoises. One says it's hot 500 years later. Another one says it's cold. And 500 years after that, the third tortoise says, if you guys are going to keep fighting, I'm getting out of here. I take it if we hear something, by, by the time we can respond to the whatever who sent the signal, uh, they may be long dead, and so will we by the time we hear anything back. Yeah, well, that's true. And that's relevant, actually, in the case of this uh, instrument in Puerto Rico, because in 1974, I believe it was, there was a message sent from that antenna, which is, by the way, outfitted with a transmitter, a 2 million watt transmitter. You know, very few radio telescopes have transmitters. That's the last thing you want in general. But this one has that big transmitter. And it was aimed at a nearby star cluster. And for three minutes, it broadcast a message from Earth. Now, <laughs> the message wasn't terribly interesting. You know, just a few things about where we are in the, in the solar system and the size of a human and something about DNA and stuff like that. But it was aimed at a cluster of hundreds of thousands of stars, some of which might have planets with aliens on them. So they would get this message. The only difficulty, really, is that that star cluster is about... 25,000 light years away. So it'll take 25,000 years for the message to get there and another 25,000 years for their reply to come back here. And who knows what that might be? It might be, you know, could you please repeat that? Whatever. But the, the, but the point is, nobody's going to be interested in waiting 50,000 years to talk to the aliens. I, I'm hanging around just, you know, just to find out what happens. But 
I, I think was was it Stephen Hawking who who said in terms of you know giving our location? Wait, is that something we really want to do? Yeah, well, he did say that because there's a, a group of astronomers and, and you know reputable people who think that broadcasting to the uh, cosmos is not a good idea because you don't know what's out there. Clearly, we don't know what's out there, and you know your broadcast might reach <laughs> some hostile society. And say, hey, wait, you know that 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 little blue planet down there around that star, uh, we got to wipe them out because you know we want to monopolize the used car market here in the galaxy or whatever. And uh, you know, so you shouldn't you shouldn't shout in the jungle. That's kind of the metaphor use of this. But you know, Stephen Hawking did say that. He said that. He wasn't the first to say it. But if Stephen Hawking had said, hey, this is my favorite dry cleaner down the road here, everybody would have thought, my God, that must be the best dry cleaner in the world because Stephen Hawking recommended it. The fact that he said this, I mean, I talked to one, well, to his daughter, and she said, well, I don't quite agree with dad on that one. I think it was just a sort of a thought of the moment. Yeah. Besides, again, going back to what we said originally, even if somebody would respond and then could even get here, uh, we're talking 50,000 years or so. So it's probably not something we have to worry about. Getting back and and finishing up by talking about Arecibo, you wrote losing Arecibo is like losing a big brother. While life will continue, something powerful and profoundly wonderful is gone. Tell yeah. me about that feeling. Well, yes, there's that. I mean, that's just kind of a personal observation. I spent a lot of time over a you know a fairly <laughs> a, a large number of years at, at Arecibo, so I personally miss it. But you know, so what? When my neighbor doesn't care about that. But what I do care about a little bit, Gil, is the loss of capability. You know, it's just maybe one more slice of the salami, but the United States needs first-rate basic research capability. And most people don't understand why we need that. You know, they think that a lot of basic research, finding the Higgs boson or whatever, is, you know, okay, it's interesting to academics, but why should they pay for it kind of thing? But, you know, it's very easy if you study a little bit of history to demonstrate that countries that don't have the interest in just basic knowledge are countries that are eventually overtaken by others. So Arecibo seems to be gone. And what's the replacement? Well, it's a telescope that looks very much like Arecibo in China and is actually slightly bigger. Well, we'll see whether whether we can make a big brother out of that as well. Uh, Seth Shostak is senior astronomer at SETI Institute. And Seth, you and I have a date to meet back here 25,000 years from now and uh, see if we get an answer from M13, okay? I'll put it on my calendar. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. 
Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to America Changed Forever. From the CBS Audio Network, I'm Gil Gross. During the COVID crisis, we've heard the phrase herd immunity thrown around a lot. Everybody agrees it's something to be desired, but some say we need vaccinations to get there. Others say no. Some say you can have it with as little as 20% having immunity. Yes, somebody actually said that to me. Others, 90%. So what is it really? And do we even know what the percentage would be for COVID? Because, yep, we've seen different percentages for different diseases. Connie Steed is president of the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology, as well as the director of infection prevention at Prisma Health in South Carolina. Connie, good to have you with us. Let's start with basics. What is herd immunity? Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. So herd immunity Uh, or really community immunity, occurs when a high percentage of the community is immune to a disease. And they can get immune to disease either through vaccination or a prior illness. So making the spread of this disease from person to person more unlikely if if herd immunity exists. Uh, So the issue is herd immunity depends on the contagiousness of the disease. Uh, Diseases that spread easily, such as measles, require a higher number of immune people in a community to reach herd immunity. So in the case of COVID-19, it's not airborne transmitted necessarily, it's droplet and aerosol transmitted, but we suspect that a higher percentage of people with a disease or vaccination would be needed. The, 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 the answer to the question is we really don't know what percentage of immunity we would need in a population with COVID-19. It's a novel or new virus, and so we still have a lot to learn. Yeah, and one of the problems, of course, that besides the fact it's new and we just don't know the percentage of herd immunity is we don't know how long the immunity from the new vaccines or even just from having had it, we don't know how long that immunity lasts. We're still too new. That's true. And so we are excited, and I think the uh, vaccines that we've got on the way are going to be very helpful But since we don't know, I think the key messaging for everyone is that we need to follow basic guidance that we've already been given. Um, You know, mask if you're going to be outside or around individuals that you you don't know and haven't been tested. We need to socially distance. We need to clean our hands, um, take flu shots, and... um, you know, just be careful using those basic things because in a state and time that we're in right now in this pandemic, we still have a lot to learn about COVID-19. Connie Steed is president of the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology and, again, also director of infection prevention at Prisma Health in South Carolina. Connie, thank you for being with us. Stay well. Uh, same thing to you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. 
Survivor's back, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.